Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this week's show, Allison will dress me in lavish couture gowns and then douse me with blood to set the mood for our review of Nicholas Winding Refn's fashion industry set horror film, The Neon Demon. I always thought you'd look really nice as a brutally mutilated corpse, Matt. Aww. Thanks. Uh, wait, what? Oh, nothing. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some other movies you can rent or stream at home right now. And as this is the time of year when critics like Matt and myself desperately try to catch up with the movies we've missed, and since The Neon Demon is one of the big 2016 movies you can already watch at home, in this case on Amazon Prime, we're going to recommend some other notable 2016 titles currently streaming on a laptop, Roku, iPad, or gaming device near you. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Allison, it's your turn to provide the picks. What do you have for us? Okay, I'm going to start with a movie that I will just confess right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Wasn't really for me. Okay. Didn't really click with it. Okay. But feel the existence of it will be of interest to many. All right. Especially when it is available on demand on November 11th. Fair enough. That movie would be Dog Eat Dog. Oh, yes. Yeah. A crime drama directed by one Paul Schrader of Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, Raging Bull, Affliction, and many more. And recently, somewhat less acclaimedly, uh, the Lindsay Lohan indie The Canyons and the thriller Dying of the Light, which Schrader ended up disavowing over Final Cut issues. That film starred Nicolas Cage, as does Dog Eat Dog, um, alongside Willem Dafoe and Christopher Matthew Cook. The three actors play a trio of ex-cons who get involved in a plan to kidnap a baby as leverage to get at a Cleveland mobster's money. It should come as no surprise to you that this plan does not go well and everything ends in, you know, reign of violence and etc. You know, uh, Schrader's film does try to subvert the beats you might expect from a story like this. He reportedly went into the movie with a strategy, don't be boring. But there are many parts of Dog Eat Dog that feel like a kind of sub-Tarantino slash Natural Born Killers-esque, uh, era, you know, uh, visiting movie from another era. Uh, there is the occasional anarchic burst, and it is certainly a pleasure to see Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe together uh, in, in one film, both 
act going big. Uh, it's not a film that I feel, as I've said, entirely works. But if you've been keeping up with Schrader's storied career, it's one that you will want to check out, and it will be on demand on November 11th. Okay, can you confirm that Willem Dafoe plays a character named Mad Dog? Oh, yes, he does. So the film is called Dog Eat Dog, and Willem Dafoe plays a character named Mad Dog. That is correct. Does he eat a dog? Not that I recall. The, his big moment. Let me let me just set the the, the the stage for you I as to love, what kind of movie this is. There's nothing I'd like more. Uh, in like one of the earliest scenes, he is in the house in a house in which his apparently now ex girlfriend and her teenage daughter live, mm-hmm. and he is kind of wandering around doing drugs. Uh, sure. It becomes clear that she is kicking him out, and he is trying to like woo her. Uh, to to stay one more night, and then he's mm-hmm. like, "Baby, you know, we'll do, we'll cook a nice." I think he says, "We'll cook some short ribs. I'll cook you some short ribs. We'll have a nice dinner." Things go wrong, as they do, and then he kills both of the women. Oh. Yeah, so this is it's that kind of movie okay. where it switches between uh, just really nihilistic violence and then kind of sometimes like fairly goofy comedy. You know, Terrific. Don't be boring, but certainly. I wouldn't say it goes down easily. Uh, but yes, so Dog Eat Dog, available on demand on November 11th. Two more to check out. These I've not seen yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing. On November 11th is The Monster. This is a horror movie that is written and directed by Brian Bertino. He wrote and directed The Strangers in 2008, which was a big kind of critic's favorite mm-hmm. horror film, you know, a home invasion movie. This one stars Zoe Kazan as an alcoholic mother to a young girl. It's a really troubled relationship with her daughter and is driving her to, to kind of dump her at her dad's house uh, when the two encounter a monster on a country road. So it is a kind of minimalist horror movie that also delves into, you know, this very uh, distressed mother-daughter relationship. Sounds a little babadooky. It does sound a little babadooky. Meets, I just made up a word. Yeah, meets like a Cloverfield or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, what I've read about it has been pretty good, and I, I really like The Strangers, and I really like Zoe Kazan. So there's a lot about this that I am looking forward to seeing. That is like Dog Eat Dog, uh, available on November 11th. Available now on demand is a movie that I definitely have to catch up with. It is. Anthropoid. This is Sean Ellis's World War II movie starring Killian Murphy and Jamie Dornan as actual spies and assassins who successfully pulled off the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, who was a high-ranking Nazi. I think it was the only successful assassination of someone of a higher-up higher Nazi uh, during the war. Mm-hmm. And it's got Toby Jones and Harry Lloyd and from all the descriptions I've read is like kind of a slow burn of a movie that has a lot of setup and then a really great finale. So it's got a great cast and it looks really like handsomely made. And it just seems like one that you would want to, this kind of slipped by during the year, but that enough good things have been said about it that it seems worth a look. So that is Anthropoid and that is now available on demand. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day from small towns with big dreams. Some girls crack under the pressure. You, 
you're going to be great. What's it feel like? To walk into a room. It's like in the middle of winter. You're the sun. It's everything. The main review on every episode of Film Spotting SVU is chosen by the show's listeners via a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. Your options for this episode were Nicholas Winning Reffin's latest effort, The Neon Demon, the critically acclaimed coming-of-age movie The Fits, and an obscure and previously hard-to-find horror movie starring a young Jodie Foster called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. And this race was not close. The Neon Demon won in a landslide, taking 54% of the vote. The Neon Demon is the latest film from Danish director Nicholas Winding Refn, whose previous efforts include cult hits like the Pusher Trilogy and Drive, along with Bronson, Valhalla Rising, and Only God Forgives. Though Refn typically focuses on male subjects, almost all of the main characters in The Neon Demon are women, primarily Jessie, played by Elle Fanning, an aspiring model who has recently arrived in Los Angeles from a small town and is looking to become a star. She receives advice from an agent, played by Christina Hendricks. She fends off creepazoid vibes from the manager of her motel, played by Keanu Reeves, of all people. And she starts a friendship with an older makeup artist, played by Jenna Malone. There is some black comedy. There are some psychedelic dream sequences. And there are a few scenes of grisly violence because this is, after all, a Nicholas Winding Refn film. All of which, I should add, is dedicated, somewhat hilariously, I find, to Refn's wife, Liv, who, according to what I've read online, was a fan of the film. So I guess she appreciated that dedication. But Allison, what did you make of all of this? Did you admire Refn's shift from a more male-oriented world to a more female-driven story? Or should he immediately return from whence he came to make more stories about Vikings or kickboxers or drug dealers? I don't mind the shift to female characters, particularly since so much of this movie is about how the how its female characters are made into uh, highly competitive semi-witches by mm-hmm. the pressures of the industry in which they are in, in which effectively male gaze is normalized and made into, you know, just the economic pressure that mm-hmm. is uh, working on all of them. I don't mind. I, I, I don't mind his shift towards that perspective. What I do like about this movie that makes me like it more than only God forgives is sense of humor it is campier it is funnier it is less dour self-serious and self-pitying you know i think that it holds you at a distance certainly more i don't it's there are air quotes all over this movie sometimes i'm not even quite sure where they fall but i do think that it has a lightness to it that i enjoyed a lot more than say his last film uh, but but I wanted to ask you. Okay, you're turning think, the tables here. I am. You're uh, breaking the rules of the podcast. I think we were both very ambivalent about Only God Forgives. Yes, this is a movie that I think has similarly lush slash excessively stylized visuals. Sure. Did you find them more tolerable in this setting when it becomes <laughs> a movie about 
about, basically? Uh, lush visuals? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because to me, having now seen this film twice and not f- – I feel like in some ways it's the, – the messages of it are so obvious and then on the other hand, some of them are so obscure and I can't quite figure out what the hell he's saying. And I feel like the visuals are a big part of that because on the one hand, this movie is gorgeous. It is – especially on the second viewing, knowing where it was going and honestly not caring all that much about some of se- some of the scenes, some of the characters, some of the plateaus. I just kind of basked in how gorgeous and how beautiful this movie is. Even even when sometimes the content is really troubling, like the photography, the cinematography is just just sumptuous. It's gorgeous. It's just a beautiful the film. Colors the colors. Gorgeous. Right. And supposedly yeah. Nicholas Winding Refn is colorblind. And all I could say, if that's true, is maybe we need more colorblind filmmakers because he is doing things with color here that are just stunning. Like there, there aren't that many movies this year that look better, especially in terms of color and the use of rich, vibrant colors and contrasting colors and light and dark right yeah than this yeah and yet i think the movie is supposed to be some sort of like critique satire investigation of not just male gaze but sort of superficiality and obsession with beauty and all of that sort of thing so i really don't know how to sort of parse like this is a beautiful movie in which it is pleasurable to look at it and yet the message of the movie is sort of like all of these people are horrible and they're sort of consuming one another and this sort of dog-eat-dog superficial world of the fashion industry is kind of awful and terrible and let's kind of poke fun at them and gee whiz, aren't these people awful? So I have a hard time sort of reconciling those two things. Having seen this twice as well, I feel comfortable saying that I don't think that it leans into any of its themes that seriously. In fact, I feel like the themes that it does have, as much as you might want to call them that, are so heavy-handed that they're close to a joke. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to say this is a movie about, you know, sex and death imagery, it literally opens with a shot of its main character dressed like a, like her throat has been slit, yes. you know, like the most beautiful uh, recent corpse sprawled elegantly you know, over uh, a chaise, mm-hmm. getting her her picture taken. Yeah, uh, you know, very quickly afterwards, when the the women are talking in the bathroom, about lipstick colors. Yes, yeah. are, she you says, are you food? Are you are you sex? Right. Yeah, and it's so on the nose that yes. it doesn't seem like he can possibly mean it, right. and yet. Those, it, it is a those are consistent themes throughout, mm-hmm. like very like on the, you know, very upfront. I feel like to take this as any serious critique of the fashion industry, I, I, I don't like. I don't think it tries to do that. I don't think it even. I mean, if it really were about the fashion industry in any kind of grounded, realistic sense, it would be set in New York. It would, you know, it wouldn't. Like right. it's LA is this I, yes, I see what strange, you're saying. You know, it's it's LA, it's version of LA, it's version like these characters kind of drift through a really dreamlike world. Yeah. And yet it's I right, and it's it's sort of not really satire, but it's also as you said, it's like you can't take it that seriously. So it's a very sort of strange movie to sort of get at what is Nicholas Winding Refn trying to say here? I see it as a fairy tale, honestly. Uh-huh. Like, seeing it the second time, this is essentially, uh, you know, it is about your Snow White 
princess. Red Riding you're, Hood. You're virginal. Yeah. Most beautiful girl in the kingdom, you know, coming into Los Angeles mm-hmm. where the jealous, like, falling princesses are all, you know, want to scheme to get her. Right. There the is wicked a witch. stepsisters. There is, yeah, the wicked witch. stepsisters. There is a witch, you right. know. And she, uh, Carl she, Glusman's character almost seems like you're kind of like woodsman or like a like hapless character who comes around. Yeah. And, and then she makes a turn. She's seduced. In which she, yeah, becomes... She bites the apple. Right. This potential, a potential evil queen herself. She before. looks... She looks into the Triforce from the Legend of Zelda. Yes. Whatever's going on there. I, I don't... After yeah. two viewings, I have no idea. But, you know, I think there is... Uh, there is something to that. Even in the... Uh, isn't in the original Snow White, the... the uh, the Wicked Queen wants her heart, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. she want her heart cut out? There is something about it that seems more than a satire, more than anything else to me. It just reads like a fairy tale imagery. Mm. That's an interesting read. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I, I can't say... It's it, it's funny. After two viewings, it's like... I've read some reviews after seeing it where people are very dismissive. And, you know, I, I, I mean, as, as I think we would agree, they say, well, this is not an accurate depiction of the fashion industry. And it doesn't try to be. Right, right. Remotely. I think that misses, right. And I think that entirely misses the point. And again, like, I don't fully, you know, I, I have trouble sort of putting my finger on exactly what he's trying to say. And yet I, I enjoy watching this movie. I sort of. I mean, I almost feel like I would ha- I would be happy to watch this movie with the sound turned down. Well, I would want the score, but I but the dialogue I don't know that I always need. I mean, it's just such a beautiful movie to look at um, that I don't necessarily need any. Like, I feel like it's almost worth recommending just on that basis alone. It's yeah. sort of superfluous what the people are talking about. I hadn't, and I, I do think that the the performances, especially Elle Fanning's performance, is almost like. I think is by design almost sedated feeling, you know, she, yeah, she I delivers want to talk so about many her. lines like very flatly. I, I think that I don't, I, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure how to parse out this movie, nor do I think necessarily there is like some grander reading to find to it that he kind of is playing with those shifting possibilities. That said for a movie that I was ambivalent about having seen it that first time, I've thought about imagery from this, like remembered it very clearly. Rewatching it, I was like, I remember the thing I remembered the most. I actually made a gif of this because it was uh, Abby Lee who plays one of the the two kind of like evil, the wicked stepsisters. Yeah, the wicked stepsisters. It was like this shot of her where she's watching something very grotesque. And her, she's impassive, except for like a slight like lip twitch, mm. like a, just the slightest bit of a sneer. This is the very end the, of the movie. The very end. Yes, yes. And I remembered it so clearly, and I was just like, it was such an indelible image. This kind of just the slightest bit of a grimace in the face of something truly awful she's just witnessed, mm-hmm. and I I liked that a lot. Yeah, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Elle Fanning because you mentioned her performance. When I did, I did, I led a, a discussion about the movie at um, Nighthawk, which I do monthly. I do, you know, we do this film discussion group. And so one month recently we did The Neon Demon. And one of the things that we talked about a lot is her presence, her performance, and her physical beauty and how people react to her in the film and how we're supposed to react to her. And the question of, because she's surrounded by all of these women are stunning. 
And yet they – so many of the – including those now – what we've now dubbed the Wicked Stepsisters. Well, Abby Lee is a supermodel. Right. right? She, is a, she is a working Bonafide supermodel Bonafide real-life right supermodel. Yes. And yet some of the, uh, uh, the men in the movie sort of dismiss the other women and sort of obsess over Elle Fanning. And one of the things that we talked about is, you know, like what makes her that much more desirable and – when she's giving this performance that's so passive and blank, and what exactly is Reffin saying there in terms of her look in the movie, her performance? And I wondered if you had a sort of a, a take on all of that. Well, I think that he chose Elle Fanning. I mean, beyond the fact that I do think that Elle Fanning is a very good actress who mm-hmm. is doing, in this case, what he wants. Like, her flatness is by design. I think he chose someone who was not who did not look, who's a pretty girl, but does not look like a supermodel. She's not a bombshell. Right. Like her face is not like carved, like Abby Lee's, which looks almost alien in like how kind of sharp her features are. Right. You know, uh, he he chose someone who looked like a ingenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that is the point of that character, which is that like, you know, you have like of the two wicked stepsisters, one of them is just like extremely beautiful. The other one has like is beautiful and they make a point out of the fact that she has engineered herself to be beautiful. Right. You know, with plastic Manufactured. Yes. And Elle Fanning's character is kind of neither of those things, but she is, you know, new, newness, like her youth, youth, right. Her youth and her newness and her innocence and her freshness she almost symbolizes that, the idea that it, in the end, there are always more more beautiful women coming off the bus, you know, and all of that. Your newness is something that you can never get back. Right, you know? right. And it is tied into all of these other things about her kind of, like, innocence. What is it she says that, like, uh, deer in the headlights look, mm-hmm. uh, Jenna Malone's character says, something along those lines right in the beginning, it's, it's something that works for you. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, the, the movie suggests in a lot of ways that, this terrible vulnerability, this like look that you were ready to be exploited is a positive quality, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's an interesting choice or, it's, or a series of interesting choices that I'm still not entirely sure they all work for me. But there's something interesting to the fact that, you know, as you said, she she doesn't have that sort of supermodel look and she is so passive in her affect and sort of flat in her line deliveries like – and I agree, Elle Fanning is a talented actor, and I, I would think that if she wanted to give more of sort of a charismatic performance, sort of glowing off the screen, she could do that. But, you know, she and Reffin decided not to do that. So it's like, it, and it, it's, I, I was, you know, I'm watching the movie going, I don't entirely, obviously she's beautiful and young and talented. It's like, I don't exactly see what the men are seeing in this movie. And I think that's kind of by design, but I still, as I said, I don't entirely know the design. Right. But I think that one of the things I really like about this movie that I think it it does in ways are very interesting is to, to kind of play with beauty as related to, and as totally unrelated to desire. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that first shot you get of her, of her in that photo shoot and you see Kyle Glusman staring over his camera yeah, in this way that it's almost, her. yeah, but that is, it is like looking at her as like setting her up as like a corpse, right? Mm-hmm. Like not even like a traditionally sexualized object, but like a, she's dead, yeah, you know? And then, uh, when Alessandra Nivola's character, who I think is made clear is not interested in women sexually, you know, but like when he sees her walk, 
he sighs. He lets out this almost like the, you know, this noticeable like, ah. Yes. And it's almost, I think it is, it, it is meant to be a reaction to that like newness on her. Yeah. And in the same way, you know, Desmond Harrington plays Jack, the famous photographer. And there's this whole very uncomfortable scene where he's going to take her photo for the first time. And he clears the set and is staring at her. And it seems like a setup that is going to lead to sexual coercion. Right. He asks her to take off her clothes. Yeah. And instead, and it's disturbing in its own right, he like paints her, right? He puts like, he smears gold paint on her like she is almost just like a sculpture or something. Yeah. Like she is not even a person. She is like clay that he is shaping. Right. You know, I think that there are other characters, including the Keanu Reeves character who look at her. Well, even then, you know, like the way that like the, pr- the presumed sexual desire that he has is all tied up in like killing, like potentially killing her. Right. Right. There, she has that dream sequence where he like puts the knife in her mouth. Mm-hmm. That it's like it's not even this, like it's it's. And he also talks to uh, Dean about the you know another girl who's really who's young, younger. real Lolita yeah. stuff. Let's say right. But yeah, it, it, obviously there's a huge obsession with with youth in the film. And, yeah. And sort of like I mean, there's kind of a. I think clearly a vampiric quality to what is happening uh, in terms of the the women in this movie, especially at the end where it like becomes almost literally vampiric. Right. But like all of these scenes that are, I think are traditionally set up to be about sex, keep getting steered off into violence, you know, or yes. like, or into so, something. Well, there's some, I can think of a couple of there's... scenes that involve sex. Some of them with uh, dead things. Yeah. Right. But I mean, with, in, with regard to her, yeah. right? Like it's almost, Oh, I see what you're do saying. You know what I mean, yes. it's like people, all of these things that seem like approaches to her that would be like about, being trying to get you know like have yeah, sex the with movie, his own girl the movie keep getting weirdly twisted yeah the movie consistently broken. kind of sets up these expectations and then defies them in a lot of right scenes. and in the like what ultimately happens to this character is that she gets devoured right not in the sense that you know you keep like waiting to have happen to her right you know I mean even the scene in the motel where it seems like there's you know it seems like it's setting up some sort of assault and then it turns out to be like a literal like mountain lion is in her room I mean that right. is another one of these sort of sex for death sort of faints that that the movie does and then yeah and then with uh Jenna Malone there is actual that those two things kind of come together in a very uh I would say um I would say that very intensely delivered scene. Yes. Committed. Yes. Very committed. Uh, I really enjoy her in this movie. I, I think she goes for it. She goes for it. She I, goes for it. I just, I mean, I find her kind of funny. Like I find her, especially watching it a second time as the, like her as the kind of coven leader or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And the same with Abby, Abby Lee, who I think, as like I don't know, becoming like the vampire queen at the end is really enjoyable. I don't think this is a particularly performance-driven film. Everyone ends up getting posed against backgrounds, like yeah. like uh, you know, beautiful, scary-looking mannequins. But I did like what the, those two in particular brought to this. Yeah, I think there's something to that too that we we haven't talked a ton about Ref and himself or compared this to other movies. But there's something in in all of these bits and pieces here that I think has to do with maybe there's something about directing in it as well, because so much, much of it is about, you know, like that scene you mentioned with the photographer and posing her and 
dousing her in gold. I mean, there's a lot that's troubling about that scene and also incredibly beautiful and striking. It's a gorgeous scene. Yeah, and 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 the fact that it's beautiful makes it even more troubling, I, I find, especially on second viewing where you're, you kind of get lost in it and you're like, wait, what am I watching right now? Right. Well, I think that uh, the whole movie, you know, uh, maybe not with great nuance, but engages with the idea of what it means for humans to be the stuff of art. Mm -hmm. Right. That like that scene where he, yeah, where he smears her with gold paint is beautiful and disturbing. And it's disturbing also just because of how he looks at her. Right. Not as flesh, you know, not as a person, but as material. Yeah. Like as material. And I think a lot of how, a lot of how the fashion industry is portrayed, this like heightened stylized version of the fashion industry is, is shaped around what it means to turn yourself into an object and how that when that's normalized, it is acceptable for someone to, you know, tell, tell someone to stand up and ask what everyone thinks of how she looks. That scene where Bella Heathcote as Gigi is made to stand up in the middle of a cocktail bar and and be evaluated on her beauty it's like such a scene of humiliation and cruelty but it's a, it should be okay within the fashion industry this is just how everyone talks that's right. the business yeah and i think that it it does the film does do a pretty good job of creating a nightmare version of that in which it's like the worst kind of mean mean high school times a thousand beauty with, isn't everything with murder it's the only thing Nice. Think about it. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap up the uh, discussion here. I would say it's a, it's a, in some ways it's mixed, but it's positive. I think it's a movie worth seeing. I mean, I, I, I again, I still don't really, you know, I can't say that it's going to, you know, it's a favorite movie of mine from this year, but I, there, there's something here. It's a, it's an object to wrestle with. I think the pieces for me are more interesting than it as a whole. Right. But I really liked watching Good pieces. it a second time. Pretty pieces. They're really pretty. Yes. So that is The Neon Demon. It is available now on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you heard this, Allison, but um, movies are dead. They're yeah. dead. That's R.I.P. Hashtag R.I.P. We really didn't pick the right kind of podcast to do. Unfortunate. I know. Yeah. Well, we're locked in now. This Might is, as well run with now it. Now it's like an autopsy podcast where we just <laughs> look at the corpse. It all fits back to the Neon Demon. Nice. I just hope nice. we don't have sex with this corpse. As That's, long as it's a really good looking corpse. Then it's okay? Like it's, no, that like, oh. the, then it's okay that it's dead. Oh, I see. Okay. No. For a second, I thought you were advocating something horrifying. The, uh, necrophilia? Yeah. Maybe next podcast. Okay. That's... <laughs> We will be in Chicago uh, <laughs> doing a live show soon. So Bye. tickets Just are still little, available. Little tease. Of what's going to be happening? Woo! <laughs> November eighteenth. Join us. What could happen? Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's been a a persistent theme of twenty sixteen. Movies are not good anymore. Movies are dead. TV is the new movies, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, there, there have been a lot of um, mediocre to bad uh, blockbusters this year. I think the summer was a pretty weak summer. I would, I don't think anyone yes. would argue that in terms of the the big movies, the blockbusters. It was, it was a very, very weak crop. That said, there are so many good movies that uh, have come out already this year. With more in the in the next, you know, eight weeks or so still to come, including some we've already seen that we love, and some that I know we're both looking forward to. Uh, that I feel like it's we're about to you know obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on in the country right now but I uh, depending on how things turn out there I feel like the end of the year in terms of the movie conversation is going to be kind of my guess is and maybe this is just me speaking for myself kind of taking back this idea that movies are dead and buried and that there are a lot of good things that are worth seeing and Part of that comes with what we do on this show, which is talking about streaming where, uh, you know, some of these services, including Netflix, they've sort of uh, lost a lot of their libraries. But the kind of the weird thing is that you get to see a lot of indie movies. If you're into indie movies, art house stuff, foreign films, documentaries especially, they show up really quickly on these services. So you have movies that come out in theaters, they play a little and then you can find them very quickly on 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 VOD and on streaming. Yeah, and I feel well, like especially I will say, uh, as Netflix has de-emphasized uh, its movie library, Amazon Prime has really invested heavily, and Hulu too, and Hulu too, and uh, they've made deals with particular distributors, so they have exclusive, you know, uh, rights to some of them, yeah. and it's. Uh, I'm always impressed by how many and how quickly things are showing up. Right. Yeah. I mean, when we used to be doing the IFC podcast, we would talk about, you know, movies they were playing in limited release and no one could see them anywhere. And then if you wanted to see them on DVD or Blu-ray, you had to wait months and months and months. And now we're talking about movies that are going to be on, in some cases here, not all, but in some cases going to wind up on, you know, year-end lists. And you could watch them right now. And if you're an Amazon subscriber, you could watch them for free. You don't even have to rent them. I mean... All is not lost. It's pretty sweet. I mean, in some ways, in our country, perhaps all is not lost. Who knows? But in the world of movies, all is not lost. Look, we just talked about the Neon Demon. That was at Cannes. For 22 minutes. That was at Cannes. Yes, like, that's right. Only a few months ago. Right. And, and you know, pretty typically, I think, for a movie like that, in a, you know, 10 years ago, it might not have even come out this year in theaters, or maybe you know maybe you would have seen it in theaters by the end of the year or very early next year and then you would have had to wait another 6 months to let it roll out around the country yeah it's it's kind of cool to see uh, uh you know the the latest Nicholas Winding Refn movie uh for for free if you're an Amazon subscriber on Amazon Prime so let's 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 be optimistic here. I'm trying I'm trying so hard to be um, optimistic yeah, can you see yeah, you know uh, fight the fight the good fight thank you I'm trying I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd Allison <laughs> uh who wants to go first here? I'm gonna go first. all right so uh, we're talking about 2016 movies they're all available right now what's your first pick well I wanted to give a shout out to a movie that I liked a lot that was so small and intimate and that it, I feel like it got flung out there some critics spoke up for it but it basically vanished it actually it, it was given a theatrical release in September so very not that long ago it is a little film called Miss Stevens it is directed by Julia Hart it's her directorial debut she wrote the screenplay with Jordan Horowitz and it stars Lily Rabe who is 
always stealing the show on American Horror Story, or at least until I gave up watching American Horror Story. I'm sure she's still doing really good work on there. <laughs> to the just, best of your knowledge, I just couldn't she's, stick she's with it. Scenes. It was just too much. But if you, you also cannot handle that anymore, you can get a really good dose of her in this movie. She plays Rachel Stevens, a high school English teacher who is brought on to chaperone three students to a drama competition. Uh, it's the kind of thing where she has to drive them. They stay in a hotel overnight. They compete over multiple, you know, multiple days. There's Margot, played by Lily Reinhardt, who's a kind of uptight A student. There's Sam, played by Anthony Quintal, who's kind of settling into his sexuality. He's gay. And the drama competition, I think, uh, it, like is a way for him to also pursue like guys he's been talking to online. And then there's Billy, played by Timothy Chalamet, who is the most talented of the three, but he's also the most unpredictable. He's there on the promise that he is going to be taking his meds regularly, and he's going to be catching up on all the schoolwork he's missed, neither of which turns out to really be working. But the movie belongs to Lily Rabe. Uh, She is... It starts out kind of delineating her character's life in ways that make you think you know what this story is going to be about. She's 29. She lives alone. She indulges in this ill-fated hookup with a married fellow teacher over the weekend. It seems like a story about maybe like, you know, single being a singleton and being lonely. And it, it is in ways about that. That's part of her life. But there is uh, there's a whole other focus that it reveals slowly and really nicely. You know, it is in part about how it can feel to be uncomfortable being an adult and an authority figure. She is someone, you know, who knows that she needs to maintain boundaries and yet at the same time wants to empathize with these children and wants to be their friend and also is is has been left really vulnerable by something feeling like she's the one who needs to be taken care of and needs to open up and needs contact. And over this weekend of, you know, hotel ballroom com- uh, competitions of, of monologues and, and small dramas, it, uh, this movie really delicately, uh, delicately manages to kind of shape her relationship with these different characters. I, it's just like a, it's a really nice portrait of a woman. And I think if every once in a while it skews a little, it gets a little pat in terms of the turns it takes. I think it's really made up by the delicacy of, of the main performance. It's a really nice little movie. Uh, it's Miss Stevens and it is available for rent. All right. That's a cool, I, I have to say I haven't seen that one myself, so I'm going to have to put that one on my still growing, ever growing uh, list of movies to see before the end of the year. Every, for every movie I watch, I have to add three more these days. It seems like my first pick was a best foreign language film nominee at this year's Oscars from Colombia, but it only got its American theatrical release earlier this year. So for the purposes of critics, polls and things like that, it is a 2016 release, at least technically. And it is Embrace of the Serpent from filmmaker Ciro Guerra, which tells the story of two parallel expeditions through the Amazon rainforest about 30 years apart, both involving a native named Karamakate, and in the first of the two journeys, this ill German explorer and his local guide come to Karamakate, and they beg him to guide him, guide them to this thing, this mystical plant called Yakruna, which supposedly has magical healing abilities and is the only substance 
supposedly that can cure the the German. And then in the second of the two stories, a much older Karmakate encounters this American botanist who is also looking for that same plant, but now Karmakate, he's older, he seems to have lost his memory, he's like disconnected from his past, from his people, uh, but he agrees to tag along with the botanist in the hopes of finding this Yakruna plant one more time. And the movie cuts back and forth as these different groups travel through the Amazon, exploring various areas, encountering different settlers, different residents in the jungle. And I, I think it can sound, and it certainly did to me, um, and that's before I tell you it's also in like half a dozen languages. Obviously, it's all subtitled. But uh, half a dozen languages, it's photographed in black and white. Hearing all of that, I was uh, admittedly a little nervous to see it my spe- myself, especially at home. You know, it seems like something that maybe you need to see on a big screen, and it certainly would be great on a big screen. Um, but I decided to watch it on Amazon Prime after enough people recommended it to me. It is available now on Amazon Prime, and it's it's – you know, it's it's a lot more accessible, I would say, than I expected. It's not cold or impenetrable or strange for the most part. It's this very sad and, frankly, all too relevant kind of exploration of different cultures meeting with different values and uh, what happens when capitalism kind of exploits these people in these places. And I would most immediately recommend it, like kind of right off the bat, to anyone who is a fan of Werner Herzog. Even though it's said in the past, it really feels to me kind of like a modern update of his sensibilities and definitely evokes his movies about mad explorers like Agira, The Wrath of God, Fitzcarraldo. Um, the difference, I, I would say, you know, comparing Herzog and Guerra is I think that Herzog really emphasizes kind of like the madness and danger of nature and – uh, you know, like how the beauty of nature is like this trap. And in Embrace of the Serpent, nature can be dangerous to an extent, but really man is the ultimate danger here. It's, you know, the jungle, there are diseases and hunger, but man is really the thing to worry about here. They, man's the one who brings violence and deception and murder, and also religion, which in both storylines is shown as this kind of weapon that's used to dominate and control the locals. And the black and white, Imagery, photography, kind of, um, I would say, a choice I was not, ex- I wouldn't expect in a movie about the Amazon, this place that's so lush and colorful. And it seems, in a way, you know, when you hear about that, it goes, well, that seems like a waste to sort of waste all that beauty to sort of bleach it out. But the thing about black and white, I think, and I'm not the first person to say this, some, you know, I've read this and I learned this in film school, is that black and white has a kind of dreamlike quality to it, a kind of unreal quality to it that definitely fits the mood of these journeys, which is kind of strange and surreal. And it also gives the final sequence of the movie, which I won't spoil, but does involve a little bit of color, some added oomph. So this was a movie that I, you know, a lot of people have told me, you will like this movie, and, and those people were correct. So I will say to you now, listener, you will like this movie. You should try watching it. It is good. It is Embrace of the Serpent, and it is available now on Amazon Prime. It's a good movie. It is you, a good you movie. You will like it. You will like it. <laughs> a simple statement. I'm not sure if you will like this, oh. the second movie I okay. recommend. I think it is a very good documentary, but it is about as difficult subject matter as really a documentary can get. It is called Pervert Park, and it was added to Netflix recently. It, I was just looking this up. 
It got a very, very small theatrical release in May, the week of May 20th, which happens to be the same week that OJ Made in America was put into theaters. Yes. And that Wiener, which is the subject of another, of we did a whole podcast on, yep. was put in theaters. Two of the most talked about documentaries of the year. So Pervert Park was kind of quietly put in there next to them. Though it does really seem like a documentary we should be talking about as well. It is directed by a Scandinavian couple, Frida and Lassa Barkforce, who heard about a trailer park in Florida that is populated with convic- convicted sex offenders and thought that it might be subject matter for a good documentary. It's interesting to read interviews they've done mm-hmm. That suggests that they didn't, they, they thought this was some kind of like, uh, you know, w- you know, willing formation of a community. That they didn't quite understand what becomes very quickly, cl- you know, clear once they start making the movie, why all of these sex offenders are living together at the Florida Justice Transitions trailer park, which is that. Uh, one of the many restrictions on sex offenders when they're out of prison is that they can't live anywhere within a thousand feet of where children congregate, which can mean, you know, schools and churches and playgrounds and sometimes bus stops, which means that living in any place that is relatively dense becomes, you know, untenable, impossible. So uh, this trailer park was started by a woman whose son had been convicted of a sex, uh, you know, some kind of uh, sex offense and, had like started it so that there was like a place to go. And this documentary, it, it is mostly made up of interviews with residents of the, the trailer park. In addition to kind of showing what life is like and the, um, what kind of, uh, how they're monitored. And it is just made up of some of the most difficult and devastating interviews that I've ever seen in a documentary because people talk very frankly about what they did almost aside from one character who is this like hipster looking college kid who appears if 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 he's telling the truth to have been just entrapped online that almost everyone there is very frank about their own guilt uh very frank about in some cases the, the fact that they don't feel like they should be reintegrated into society but uh it so many of them also in ways that complicate, uh, you know, kind of like complicate your emotions about this even more. So many of them talk about the abuse that they also grew up with and how it can be this cycle that, you know, that sexual abuse can be like, uh, it it can change the way you think about sex Mm -hmm. and kind of uh, in ways that just lead to it being passed along. Uh, the one woman in particular whose name is Tracy tells this like devastating story about her father first and then her and her son and then her son uh, by himself that is just wrenching and so hard to listen to. And I think what's very admirable about this movie is the ways in which it is willing to try to give empathy to people who are really, I think we like we as a nation tend to consider like the most loathed criminals, you know, to give them empathy without coming anywhere near, like never, never soft pedaling or downplaying their crimes. Uh, And it, it's not a movie about policy necessarily, though I think what does come up is 
how not useful having such a broad array of things that get classified uh, that can put you on the sex offender registry is Mm -hmm. and whether the registry is ultimately that useful a tool really difficult movie to watch but very well done and I think the fact that it is made by a couple of outsiders gives it a bit of distance that is very helpful like they take a truly observational approach that I think gives them a bit of an in into this world that is really impressive as much as it is, is hard to watch. So that is Pervert Park. If you're looking for some light, light viewing, <laughs> pop it in on Netflix. Uh, it is really, it's, it's also, it's 77 minutes long. Oh, it is extremely good. compact. Yeah, that's good. And it does a lot in very little time. Hmm. I haven't seen that one yet myself. <clears throat> I missed it. Uh, you're, you're right. It didn't have the best week to come out for a documentary. It, and I think it only really got like a week or two release. It was oh. on uh, PBS. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll add it to my my list, and then I look forward to having to explain to my wife when she looks at it going, Pervert Park, what is? what are you watching? And I'll say, it's fine. It's just fine. Well, my second pick is also a documentary. Um, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter. This one's a little more. Uh, I, I can I can uh, recommend to a, probably a wider uh, a swath of people. It is good. Also, you will like it. I think uh, to some extent, it may depend on your musical taste, but I, I don't really think so. Um, it is about, and this is why I think you don't have to like the band to really like the movie. Is that the band itself is very entertaining, very very outspoken, and they make good subjects of a documentary. The band is Oasis. The movie is called Supersonic or Oasis Supersonic. I've seen it billed in both ways. It's directed by Matt Whitecross and is available right now for rent. Oasis, of course, fronted by the Gallagher brothers, Liam and Noel, both wildly talented, wildly arrogant, and most importantly for our purposes, wildly disliked by each other. They just hate each other. They have, I mean, you can't even say they have oil and water chemistry. I think that's an understatement. They're like boiling hot oil and ice cold water. So not only do they not mix, if you dared to put them together, like when the splatter that would come off of that collision, it burns anything that comes near them. So the documentary... It it uses their it has interviews with both of them along with members of their family the rest of the band and it it sort of follows them it, it begins and ends with the same these gigs which I did not know that they played but apparently like some of the biggest gigs ever played by a band one hundred and twenty five thousand people showed up to two straight nights so a quarter of a million people came to see Oasis just basically just like a handful of years like four years from their first gigs in Manchester. And the twist here is that there's no, like, modern talking head interviews in the film. Instead, you hear Noel and Liam and and the rest of them talking about their history and often giving very different interpretations of events, talking over archival clips of the band performing or giving old interviews from the 90s, and then there's animation, there's collages of various photographs, newspapers, magazine headlines... And I've seen some movies do this before. This isn't that original. It doesn't reinvent the rock documentary, but it's very it's a very solid version of this kind of movie. And uh, I was a fan of Oasis in its heyday, and it does sort of remind me. It definitely had me kind of – I had some nostalgic feelings here, and it did remind me that you know I haven't listened to Oasis in a long time. But for that brief period at their height, they were a really good rock band. They had some great songs. And it also definitely lets Liam and Noel show themselves to be the egomaniacs that they both could be at times. 
and they are both producers of the film, but I, I can't say watching it that I felt like it soft-pedaled them or their faults or flaws. And if anything, by letting them sort of speak their minds, when, when, the, when it's these guys speaking their minds, I feel like it's in a way almost more critical of them than an outsider that would have just been observing them would have been. So um, the movie it, it sort of you know, it loops around back to these huge gigs that it sort of starts with. Uh, the band did drag on for several years after that, and I kind of wish the movie did too. I would have loved to have hear, heard them like rationalize those years and why they didn't do as well suddenly as they had been, and you know, as people started leaving the band and stuff, I would have liked to have heard them kind of bickering and arguing about that. But the movie that is here I found very satisfying and would recommend, especially if you are a fan of the band, it is, again, called Oasis Supersonic, and it is available for rent. I saw Oasis once live. Did you? I yes. never did. I remember because... Did uh, uh, did Liam they, they pull, a, pull a hamstring or pretend get, his voice hurt and leave? Yeah, he did leave. He yeah. didn't, they didn't get in a fight on stage, but I think someone might have like thrown something on stage, and he got very upset and mm-hmm. walked off, leaving the rest of the band still playing on stage. Right. Yes. And, they, and then they, never came back on. They absolutely cover that, and you see that in the movie. He has these temper tantrums on stage, and he'll start cursing out the audience and wander off, leaving Noel to kind of pick up the pieces. And, who, you know, didn't want to be a frontman, and the beginning of it was sort of shy and withdrawn. And then you start seeing as the time goes on, oh, he's got a good voice. Oh, he's, he's the one writing all of these great songs. You know, and that's sort of a, a source of tension is like, what is Liam doing here? If, other than stalking off stage all right, the time. Other than and drawing headlines and getting and getting attention, which, you know, he his sort of view of what a rock band should be is not just have great music. They should be controversial and edgy and causing problems and destroying hotel rooms. And and uh, his brother does not necessarily agree, which is another source of entertaining tension in the film. So. So, yeah. Oasis Supersonic. You're not going to see them perform live anytime soon, I don't think. So this is probably the next best thing. Very briefly, one more time. This is our last podcast before the show. Let us mention we are doing our first live podcast in Chicago. Friday, November 18th at Shuba's Lincoln Hall. We are opening for the Film Spotting Original Recipe podcast uh, we don't have a ton of time, so we, we haven't fully formalized exactly what we're going to be doing in total, partly because Probably we don't... Probably only going to be one or two song and dance numbers, is yes, what you're saying. Yes, right, and recreating that scene from The Neon Demon, if we have time. I know you mentioned that already earlier yeah, in the show. Like, which scene are we going to recreate from Neon Demon? There's so many. There's so many. It's hard to choose. Kind of <laughs> Rushmore style, but we'll figure <laughs> something out. But we did put we did mention this on our last episode, and we did have already gotten a few responses. One idea that we had, which we thought would be fun, was particularly for our listeners who are buying tickets as an incentive to buy tickets. In fact, as tickets are still available, although I think we're there, we're starting to get a little uh, low in that area. We thought instead of all of these algorithms on Netflix and Hulu, you know, we talk about how they're so bad at recommending movies. Let's it's put up or shut up time for film spotting as for you. We're going to we're going to create our own recommendation algorithm, aka Matt and Allison. So, if you are coming to the show, if you've bought a ticket and you would like a personalized film recommendation or I guess TV recommendation from us, what you need to do is email us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com. I think we said give us 10 of your favorite movies, right, and a recommended, like, genre or a type of movie you're – or, I guess, TV show you're looking for, 
and we will uh, put them into our computrons, uh, whatever those are, and we will deliver on the night of the show, either as part of the show or just very quickly or in person if we don't have time. I think we're going to make it part of the show, though. Uh, our personalized recommendations, and let's hope that they haven't seen these recommendations. I'm, I'm terrified every single one we recommend, they're gonna, someone's going to yell out from the audience, I've seen that, give me another, and then no. we'll be like, oh, I don't know what to do. No, you got you to gotta take what you get. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We do have some other stuff planned. It's going to be great, and it's our first time in Chicago. We're very excited. And uh, again, get your tickets at lh-st.com before they run out. It's Friday, November 18th at 7 p.m. Film Spotting SVU live in Chicago. All right, let's talk about a new movie here. The one movie that the big wide release of this week that we've both seen. It is Arrival, the new film from Denis Villeneuve, director of Sicario and Prisoners. This is a sci-fi film starring Amy Adams. She plays a linguistics professor. We may have mentioned this on our TIFF podcast. We did talk about it a little yes. bit. So. But briefly here, if, you're, if you haven't listened to that episode, if you've forgotten that episode, are we recommending it, Allison? I feel like I would tentatively recommend it. I think I've said this before, but I don't. I feel like with Denis Villeneuve, I feel like he's a really great director of material that I'm very unimpressed by most of the time. And I feel like with Arrival, it did the same thing that I've, I've had with a lot of his other films where I'm so swept up by just his filmmaking skill, but then the uh, actual substance of the story uh, and what happens uh, kind of leaves me underwhelmed. And that was the case for the, with this one. But I don't know. How did you feel about it? I was, I I was a, more of a fan. It hit me a little harder than I think it hit you. Uh, uh, it got a little dusty in the theater a couple of times. Right off the bat, the first couple of minutes, real gut punch. Really? Oh, yeah. Big gut punch. And then at the end as well. And uh, I was generally pretty, pretty, you know, kind of along for the journey, I would say. I haven't seen it again yet. And I wonder whether this movie is enhanced by a second viewing or if it loses something. Because a lot of it, and I think if you've seen the trailers, you know this, it's a lot of it is about the mystery. What is inside these ships? What are they doing here? What is that for? And obviously I won't spoil any of that. But it is interesting to watch that unfold. But now that I know all of that, now that I know the big things that are coming, what will I think of it? And will the emotion still be there? I don't honestly know. and I'm, But I am curious to see it again. I'd like to, if I have a chance before the end of the year, I, this is a movie I would like to see again. So a uh, stronger recommendation for me, a more mixed recommendation from Allison for Arrival. And if you do want to hear more of our thoughts, go back and listen to our uh, TIFF podcast because I think we discussed it more in depth there. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. This is the segment on the show where we give you some new releases that we recommend that have just been added to various streaming services. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, which again is svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, would you like to go first? you go first okay fine i'll go first then well then give me three new releases all right first up on hulu if you need a diversion from modern politics why not get whisked away on a magical journey to beaches and surfing and dudes in president masks robbing banks with keanu reeves and patrick swayze it's Point Break, the original Point Break, I might add, now available on Hulu. One of the pinnacles of 90s action cinema from future Hurt Locker director Catherine Bigelow. 
It features Keanu Reeves saying things like, I am an FBI agent, and shooting his gun in the air in frustration because he just loves Patrick Swayze's bank robber that much. That is Point Break, available now on Hulu. Next up, also available on Hulu, is The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's mid-70s masterpiece that doesn't have the word Godfather in the title. Gene Hackman stars as a surveillance expert hired for a job spying on this couple that goes in some places he does not expect. And the things going on in this film involving, you know, they don't involve hacked email servers or fake political websites based in Macedonia. But in terms of its depiction of surveillance and bugging and paranoia, it doesn't feel all that dated. That is the conversation available on Hulu. And finally, speaking of old movies that don't feel dated and might just make you reflect on the state of the world we live in, how about checking out The Manchurian Candidate, also on Hulu. Yes, all three of my picks are on Hulu this week, and as I think we already mentioned, that site has added a lot of good movies lately, so take note in this John Frankenheimer political thriller par excellence. Frank Sinatra finds himself at the middle of a conspiracy involving communists trying to exert secret political influence on American elections by getting a man elected that they hope they can control and that in no way bears any resemblance to 2016. This film is just pure escapist fun. That is The Manchurian Candidate, available on Hulu. Okay, uh, how about two listener recommendations? Our first one here comes from Garrick. Garrick writes in and says, Hello, uh, I saw you were looking for listener recommendations for streaming films. I just watched The Invitation on Netflix, and I think it's worth a watch. It's a slow and immersive in the way it builds tension, and in my opinion, it all actually pays off in the ending. Plus, I just love a movie with a good dinner party setting. That's my recommendation. Thanks for all you do. That is from Garrick. And our next recommendation comes from the wonderful film critic Mike D'Angelo, who's a listener of the show. He wrote in with a recommendation, which is super cool. He writes in and says, For the love of God, and I hope Matt is reading this. He'll really sell that. For the love of God, tell your listeners to head to the newly, newly launched Filmstruck service and watch The Nasty Girl which made one of my earliest top 10 lists in 1990. Back then, it had a fairly high arthouse profile, even landed a foreign-language Oscar nomination. But director Michael Verhoeven, no relation to Paul, never amounted to much, and the film has largely been forgotten, despite its deliberately misleading Come On Tava title. The protagonist, a high school student named Sonia, a fantastic performance by Lena Stoltz, is deemed nasty, not for anything sexual, but because she uses an annual essay contest to explore what the older citizens of her small German town did during World War II to their increasing consternation and eventual outright anger. The film inhabits an intriguing zone midway between satire and straight drama, with Verhoeven employing alienation effects like direct camera address and placing the actors in front of blatantly projected backdrops, a technique I didn't see again until Almereda used it in Experimenter. And if I were to make a list of the best films of the past 25 years that nobody talks about, The Nasty Girl would not be on it because it came out 26 years ago. But (laughs) if I were to make a list of the best films of the past 26 years that nobody – okay, you get the idea – Uh, She's older now. Such a nasty woman. Note, Filmstruck has it listed under its German title. 
Oh boy, here we go. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Das Drecklich Madchen? Madgen? Sure. I don't speak good German, obviously. Looks like you have to search that. So D A S S C H R E C K L I C H E M A D C H E N, because my pronunciation was so bad. So that is the Nasty Girl in its German title. Available on the new service, Filmstruck. Thank you, Mike D'Angelo, for that wonderful recommendation. Okay, give me one from your my list. You gave me number seven on my my list. And right now that is actually not a film. It is a stand-up special. Patton Oswalt's Talking for Clapping. And the description here says, On stage in San Francisco, the comedian covers topics like old people getting drugs, his worst stand-up set, gay proms, and a horrible birthday clown. And... I'm a fan of Patton Oswalt. I own several of his CDs back when CDs were a thing. I own several of his stand-up comedy CDs. I have not watched this one yet, but he's been in the news lately. There was a, a lovely profile of him written recently, I think, in the New York Times about him grappling with the death of his wife. So I think it mentioned that he had this stand-up special recently added to Netflix and new for Netflix. So I put it on my my list. Haven't watched it yet. We'll hopefully watch it soon. Patton Oswalt, colon, talking for clapping. Allison, you are up with your new releases. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Give me those first. All right. I have an all Paul Verhoeven new release set wow. here. He's got, you know, his new movie, L is coming out in theaters, I believe, this week. So very appropriate. First up is Flesh and Blood, which is new to Tubi TV. Uh, this would be the 1985 film that was his first English language film, starring Rutger Hauer and Jennifer Jason Lee, set in 1501 in Italy, a uh, kind of grittier, grimmer, uh, darker Middle Ages story that really didn't do well in the box office, and but started Verhoeven down a career to Hollywood greatness. Flesh and Blood, that's on 2B TV. New to Netflix is Black Book. Uh, this is his 2006 World War II thriller. Uh, until L, really, this was the last feature he'd made. It had been 10 years ago. Uh, starring Carice Van Houten, who is now famous for Game of Thrones. Uh, at the time, this was, I think, uh, for a lot of people, the first time they'd seen her. Uh, a lot of uh, you know American audiences. It was her breakout here. And who is really enjoyable as a Jewish woman who goes undercover spy for the the Dutch resistance. And in true Paul Verhoeven fashion, this does include having to (laughs) dye her pubic hair, which is (laughs) like such a, in in the middle of this movie, such a very characteristic touch. That's Black Book. That is on Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu is Showgirls. Verhoeven's 1995 film, his grand attempt at making NC-17 movies work in the mainstream cineplex, that did not take. No? This film did not no? take. Though it does have a solid uh, cult following these days and a, a steady group of people who are willing to defend it, starring Elizabeth Berkley as Nomi Malone in a, role, in, in a performance in which she truly seems ready to devour the world whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is Showgirls, and it is on Hulu now. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up we have one from Ross, who writes, Loving the show as always. It's no secret, especially since the popular doc Room 237 came out in 2013, Mm -hmm. that Stanley Kubrick movies inspire nutty theories. Mm -hmm. Something about his notorious perfectionism and unwillingness to discuss his own work drives us crazy for answers. 
And since he provided so few, we must seek out our own. I recommend watching a video essay on YouTube by Rob Ager that kicked around for a few years called 2001, A Space Odyssey, Meaning of the Monolith Revealed. Cheesy title aside, the video's thesis is awesome. Ager argues that the monolith isn't an alien artifact at all, but rather a representation of the screen on which the movie occurs. Mind blown. blown. (laughs) Uh, The monolith as movie screen, what a great idea. With this interpretation in mind, I then recommend re-watching Kubrick's sci-fi epic because if your experience is anything like mine, the film's meaning changes drastically. Mm. It's a lot more meta. Dave realizes in the film's finale that he's a character in a movie, and suddenly 2001 seems like a predecessor to The Matrix. And though it no longer involves aliens from this perspective, somehow it's even more esoteric than before. Reminds me of the slew of scientific articles from earlier this year discussing the possibility that we are living in a simulation. Whoa. Did Stanley Kubrick think that the universe is a hologram? That we are projections on a three-dimensional screen? Oh, I, my brain can't handle and this recommendation. did he make 2001 to show us that the greatest accomplishment of mankind will be realizing our own unreality? What? Who knows? But it's fun to think about. I can't. I can't handle this. Blew right now. our minds. I can't Ross. handle this tonight of all nights. Our minds are blown. Well, that is on YouTube. 2001: A Space Odyssey. Meaning of the Monolith revealed. If you can handle it, thank you, Ross, for that. Second recommendation is from Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia, who actually has a double recommendation here. What? Ed writes, there were two films that I recently watched on Amazon Prime that I think were unjustly forgotten or ignored. The first, if it's not too painful to watch pending real world events, was (laughs) Primary Colors, a flawed but still interesting and entertaining political film with interesting things to say about the political process. The other was Equals, which, while certainly treading ground stomped on by films like Equilibrium and THX 1138, still managed to be engaging and visually unique. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ed. I've been meaning to, it's funny, prim- just thinking about primary colors and how, like, I want, I'm waiting for the movie. There's going to be a primary colors for this election, don't you think, at some point? I just, what. How can you make fiction off of this collection? It just seems, it seems inevitable, it but seems... I never, I don't think I ever saw that movie, but I was just, th- I'm thinking about it. So I'm glad we got that recommendation. I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to find some time to watch it. All right. One film my list. You gave me number nine. It is Into the Inferno. Oh. Yes. An exploration of volcanoes in Indonesia, Iceland, North Korea, and Ethiopia. Featuring and directed by Werner Herzog, who goes around with uh, Clive Oppenheimer, a volcanologist. And, uh, you know, it's a Herzog movie. Volcanoes, you know, uh, opines about volcanoes poetically. Actually, his second movie about volcanoes this year, he also made a, a fiction film, Salt and Fire, starring Michael Shannon and Gael Garcia Bernal. There was too much volcano to be contained within one film nicely done all of the chaos bubbling from the caldera must be unleashed within multiple films in a variety of genres no 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 let's move on let's move on all right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We've got an eclectic batch. Allison, you have the first one. What is it? 
It is a film called Miss You Already. It'll be on Amazon Prime on November 17th. This came out last year, directed by Catherine Hardwick, who you know has a dis- distinction of making really one of the like highest grossing movies a female director has made in Twilight. And then getting kicked off the franchise and uh, not getting another giant movie since. But this one is, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of glad she, she made it instead of going on to make another giant movie. It stars Tony Collette and Drew Barrymore as a pair of lifelong best friends who uh, are married to Dominic Cooper and Patty Considine. And the story is about how Tony Collette's character, Millie, uh, who you know has kids and has been has a kind of high powered career, finds out that she has breast cancer, and about how how Drew Barrymore's character, who is struggling with uh, fertility issues, puts her life on hold to to be with her best friend, and it is this really sweet but not sickly ode to friendship, and about the idea that a friendship can be maybe the most important relationship in your life. And it's got some really good performances, particularly from Tony Collette. It was really ignored or I think people kind of like dismissed it as like a beaches style movie. And I think it's with all respect to beaches, it's a little better and more grounded than that. Beaches. And there's not nearly as much singing. Take that beaches. Uh, So that is your first option. Miss you already. That will be on Amazon prime on November 17th. Okay. Our second option, which will be available on both Hulu and Amazon on November 19th is Creed, directed by Ryan Coogler. This was, I guess, technically a spinoff of the Rocky series, although Rocky does appear in it, Sylvester Stallone. The only person from this outstanding movie that was nominated for an Oscar, which uh, became, I would say, a bone of contention last year. A bit of controversy about that. But a an excellent film, a boxing film, and with Michael B. Jordan in the role of Creed, the title character, the son of Apollo Creed, the... Rocky's, Rocky's, uh, I guess, fam- most famous opponent or one of his most famous opponents, later his friend, sparring partner, died in Rocky Four. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Oh, they're there. Ugh. But uh, yeah, it's coming to streaming. I don't think we've ever really talked about Creed in depth on the podcast, and we thought uh, there's plenty to talk about there. So that is option number two, Creed, directed by Ryan Coogler. Available on Hulu and Amazon on November 19th. And finally, our third option is Paddington. This is the movie from 2014. It will be available on Netflix on November 16th. Uh, This is the half-animated, half-live-action movie uh, featuring Paddington Bear, the famous adorable bear from uh, darkest Peru from the jungles uh, who comes to England and is adopted by a human family. And, you know, this is a character with like some very old fashioned aspects of uh, including the darkest Peru uh, old fashioned aspects to his, his character that the movie updates really elegantly. It becomes in some ways a metaphor for immigrant populations and for resistance to them by evil people played by, played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, but, you know, got Hugh Bonneville, Sally Hawkins, great cast. It's adorable. And I feel like it kind of got underappreciated, in part because I think some early screen tests of the Paddington character looked a little nightmare foolish. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the end result, I promise, is not that way. 
So that's your third option, and that will be on Netflix on November 16th. All right. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 14th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, November 22nd. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discussed on the show. I know we've been a little late with some of them recently, but I promise it's something we're still doing. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at, at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we also share more streaming suggestions from various platforms out there. New titles. I try to be very useful. Uh, as well as streaming suggestions from listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.